He wanted to do it himself. He was one of the most brilliant, creative uh, innovators of the 20th century, and he was going to do it himself. And it cost him his life. Steve Jobs, the founder, co-founder of Apple, was diagnosed with a rare form of pancreatic cancer in 2003. It was caught very early when it was still inside the pancreas. Doctors recommended immediate surgery to remove the cancer while it was still confined and before it had spread. Once it spreads, it's typically a death sentence. Despite pleas from his doctors and the begging of his family members, Jobs wanted to cure it himself, and so he spent the next nine months experimenting with alternative medicines. According to his biographer, his attempt to save himself caused his death. By the time he finally agreed to surgery, nine months later, the cancer had spread, and it would end his life. Jesus talks about two kinds of people. Neither necessarily thinks they need saving until things get bad. And if they do, they want to save themselves through whatever means. One tends toward a more religious kind of unbelief, the other toward an irreligious unbelief. And the results spiritually leave them far from God, even those who think themselves spiritual. The context for the passage we're about to read in Luke chapter 15 is that Jesus has been dining with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and all kinds of people who, who the, the pastors look down upon. And the pastors have been haranguing Jesus, saying, why do you and your people, why do you eat with these wicked, sinful, evil people over here? And Jesus tells a story about the pastor's and about the sinners. It's a story of two sons. This is from Luke chapter 15, beginning in the 11th verse. This is God's gospel. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a, a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went, and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. This is God's gospel from the words of Jesus Christ. What do we see here? We see a younger brother. You know, it's the younger brother who basically asked for his one-third share as the younger brother. Uh, older brother, we get two-thirds. That's the way primogenitor went in, in Israel. Well, he's, he's asked for his third of the estate, even though it's his dad's not actually dead yet. He's saying, I, I want it anyway. And he goes off to a foreign place, and he, he spends it in wild living, and, and then ends up in the worst place you could possibly be if you were Jewish, which is in a pig pen, because pigs were unclean animals. That's why, to this day, you know, observant Jews don't eat pork chops and bacon, uh, unless it's turkey bacon. Um, probably healthier, but um, that's not my point. Um, this is the prodigal son, we call him. The younger brother traditionally has been called the prodigal son. Prodigal means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. Somebody who throws their money around towards just anything. They're not careful with it. They're overly generous. And that's why we call him a prodigal, because he squandered all his wealth, his third of the estate, in wild living. Now, what does the younger brother want? The younger brother wants to run his own life. He leaves God, who his father represents, to go to a far-off country where he can do whatever he wants. He spends everything on wild living. Now, understand, there's nothing unclear about what he wants. He wants to be his own boss. He wants to call the shots. God only comes to mind when things get really, really, really bad, and that's when he thinks he can go home and bargain with God. The younger brother wants God's blessings, but the younger brother does not want God. He wants to get away from God, even though he wants stuff that only God can give. Uh, it, you know, it's kind of, some of you have parents who are getting along in years. Now, what would it mean if you asked for your share of the inheritance now? You're saying, Mom, Dad, I wish you were gone. Because I want what you have, but I don't want you. It's cosmic treason that the younger son is committed. He tries to offer penance when things get bad. He tries to bargain with his father. He tries to bargain with God saying, I'll be one of your servants. I'll be one of your slaves. I'll be one of your hired men. He's not asking to be a son again. 
older, a younger brother doesn't want salvation until things get really, 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 really bad, and then they'll go to God if they think they can get what they want from him. Now, some of you are not necessarily younger brothers, but some of you might be actual Christians who do have a faith, but it's a younger brotherish faith, uh, an immature faith, a weak faith, uh, a, a faith with a divided heart. You may have an actual relationship with God, but it's not very intimate. You may find it therefore difficult if you're younger brother-ish to trust God with certain areas of your life. You may have a hard time giving away your income to, to others. You, you may know that Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. He's been saying that for like three chapters now, but you're going to try. You may be tempted to put your personal leisure and comfort ahead of other things like spiritual disciplines or walking with God and, 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 and being faithful to, to obey everything he says. Uh, you know, you're more likely to fall into the visible kind of external notorious sins than many other people. A younger brother wouldn't care. But if you're an actual follower of Jesus and younger brother-ish, your conscience is going to bother you. The Holy Spirit will convict you. You may keep falling into the same sin, but the Holy Spirit keeps convicting you and bringing you back. He may lead you to a pigsty to get you back, but he's going to do it whatever it takes. If you're younger brother-ish, you may only pray when things get really tr troubling. And, and that's sad because as a younger brother-ish Christian, you are losing out on the whole relationship for which God saved you uh, so that you might be in relationship, uh, throwing all your anxieties onto him because he cares for you. Uh, and what the father wants of his younger brother, you see it by his response when he sees him far off, he goes taking off after him. What the father wants is one thing. The father wants his younger son to come home. Because he loves him, and he misses him, and he wants him back. I've got a picture. Can we get that first picture? Um, this is uh, this is Georgia May. A number of years back, uh, Chris Anderson took her dog Georgia May on a, a little uh, a little hike through uh, the the Penasquitos Canyon Preserve near San Diego, and um, there were lots of signs saying. All animals must be on a leash, warning of dangers and whatnot. But Chris saw that Georgia wanted to run, and so she just let Georgia run all over the place. And, uh, and then at nightfall, when the park was closing, she kept calling for Georgia, and Georgia wasn't coming back. And she couldn't find Georgia. And so finally, when the park closed, she had to leave. And the next day, she came back and searched all over that canyon, calling out for Georgia. And, and the, the, the person working there said, the, the, the officer said, Man, your dog's dead by now. A dog can't survive in that canyon at night. There are wild coyotes that will eat any pet in that canyon. That's why we tell you to keep them on a leash, because your dog's already gone. But she came back a second day, and a third day, and a fourth day, and a fifth day, and a sixth day, because all she wanted was to have Georgia May back. Her heart loved Georgia May. She missed Georgia May, and she wanted Georgia May to come home. Finally, after the sixth day, she accepted the fact that Georgia May was gone forever. She had been lost, lost, lost. Then on the morning of the seventh day, she heard banging at her back window and her back door. And she got up, and she recognized the sound. 
And there at her back door was Georgia May, who over seven days had walked 35 miles home. Nobody knows exactly how, but we've got that last picture of Georgia May. And when Georgia May came back, Chris Anderson, who is not a particularly emotional person by her own, by her own you know, admission, wept loud, joyful tears streaming down her face. She celebrated because she had lost her precious Georgia May, and Georgia May had come home. Friends, it's what the Father wants for you. If you have, have, have wandered away, he just wants you to come home. It's the heart of God, a heart of love for his people. We see this younger brother living a life independent of God, independent of, of his father's instruction, wanting God's blessings, but not wanting God. And God just wants him to come home. We see the younger brother. And we also see the older brother. The older brother is the one who was out in the fields working because he was disciplined, rigorous, righteous. He was a rule keeper. He was the obedient son. He was the faithful son. He was the good son. So it seems. Um, until what happens is his younger brother comes back and there's celebration and he's angry about it. And he refuses to go into the celebration. He makes his father come out to him, publicly humiliating his father in front of his guests. And his father begs him to come in. And he's not doing it. What does the older brother want? He too wants God's blessings, but not God himself. Did you notice he wanted a, a, a goat to celebrate with his friends, not to celebrate with his father? He viewed the fatted calf and the ring and the robe as coming out of his two-thirds of the inheritance, which means he was working on the assumption that his father was dead already too. He wanted his stuff. He wants his younger brother out of the picture as well. He refuses to even acknowledge him as his brother. He calls him this son of yours, not my brother. Uh, you know, there's a psychology to this. He, he has to look down on his brother in order to justify himself as one of the good people, as one of the worthy people, the people who deserve their inheritance. Probably wanted that ring back. Definitely that robe. It was the best one, it said. The older brother used his obedience to gain leverage over his father. That's why he was so upset. He said he had slaved. The Greek word is doulain, to work as your slave. I slaved for you all these years, and you never gave me a goat for me and my friends. That's not a heart of love. That's not thinking like a son even. He's using his obedience to get leverage over God. I'm going to obey you, God. I may hate what your commands are. I may think they're unjust, but I'm going to obey them because I want to have power and leverage over you so that you'll give me what I want. There's a story of a, a woman who, who, who owned a, a, a mid-sized rabbit farm uh, in, in Belgium. And she grew these rabbits, and, and she got one rabbit that was so huge. This thing was like a six-foot-tall rabbit. It was a massive bunny rabbit that, that it got so huge, it, and it got picky. It would only eat Belgian chocolates. Um, it was amazing. Uh, this, this huge rabbit, she got it, and, and she was like, I'm going to have to keep feeding this thing chocolates, 
Belgium, and it's so massive, and I am not worthy of this giant bunny rabbit. I can't keep this bunny rabbit. It's too precious. Only a king is worthy of this bunny rabbit. So she went to the king of Belgium and presented the world's largest bunny rabbit to him and said, Your Highness, no, only you, a king, are worthy to have a bunny this great. And the king took it and was so thankful and said, You know, you know, ma'am, I, I own some land right next door to your bunny farm. Would you take over my land and, and, and use it to grow more bunnies? And she said, yes, I'd be honored. Thank you. And she left. And meanwhile, the, uh, the, the, the king's advisor uh, overheard all of this and got an idea of his own. And so the next day, he went out to his stable, and he got the nicest black stallion in, in all of the kingdom of Belgium. And, and, and it was the finest one. And he said, I'm going to give this to the king and see if he gives me more land like he did the bunny rabbit girl and so he brought this thing in um, um, and she wasn't a girl she was a woman thank you but uh, he brought in this stallion and brought it to the king and said oh king your highness only you are worthy of a black stallion as fine as this the finest in the land and the king said thank you Is that it, King? Yes. Thank you. You see, the king said, that young woman gave me the bunny rabbit. You gave the black stallion to yourself because you were just trying to use it to gain leverage over me so that I would do what you wanted me to do. That's the heart of the older brother. You know, his sin ultimately is worse than his brother's sin because he doesn't recognize his sin. It's unknown. It's hidden by the attitudes of the heart. Uh, you know, and yet these are the ones to whom Jesus says in the end when they say, look at all the stuff I did for you, God. He says, get away from me. I never knew you. Nothing comes between you and God like morality and goodness and decency and respectability. There are two ways to be lost. You can be lost because of your sin, like the younger brother, or you can be lost because of your righteousness, like the older brother. The elder brother humiliates his father. He makes him come talk to him outside. He makes him beg. He doesn't love his father. He's already viewing the, the father's own money as his rightfully, wishing him dead. Uh, you know, he's, not, he's obeyed outwardly and thinks therefore he has a right to tell God how to run his own universe. And what was keeping the elder brother from entering the celebration of the kingdom of Jesus, the celebration of salvation? He tells you right there in the text what was keeping him from entering the celebration of the kingdom. All these years I've been slaving after you. What kept him out? What was preventing him from going into the celebration of the kingdom of Jesus? was the fact that he had a works-based relationship with God, thinking that he had slaved for God and therefore had leverage over God and could therefore tell God how to deal with his stuff. These are damnable good works. Whenever the church wakes up and truly experiences reformation, what happens is, is morality is preached against in terms of mere morality. The gospel of grace becomes front and center, and, and in come the outcast, and those who think themselves good and righteous end up leaving. Angry. Respectable people have always been outraged by the real message of Jesus. I've shared before 
uh, uh, the account, the, the letter that has come down to us from the Duchess of Buckingham, the uh, Countess of Huntingdon, who had become converted to Jesus under the preaching of George Whitfield uh, during the Great Awakening during the 18th century in, in Britain, tried to share about Jesus with all of her aristocratic colleagues, you know, the ladies and whatnot, and she would send sermons, written sermons, by George Whitfield to her friends, hoping that they would get the gospel and see Jesus and, and humble themselves and, and, and be saved. And she would invite them to come hear him preach with her. And one of her aristocratic peers, the Duchess of Buckingham, after having been invited by the Countess to come and hear George Whitfield preach the gospel, sent her an icy note declining. This is what she wrote. I thank your ladyship, but the doctrines are most repulsive and strongly tinctured with impertinence and disrespect toward their superiors in perpetually endeavoring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. It is highly offensive and insulting, so I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. You could see how offended she was. She had a righteousness of her own, and she knew it, and she was expecting it to be respected. The audacity to think that she is a mere sinner like all the other people, it's monstrous. It insulted her self-righteousness. But, but the countess, her name was Selena, uh, she pursued her and her other aristocratic friends because she knew that the father wanted both little brothers and elder brothers to come home, to come into the party, to join the celebration of Jesus and his great saving power. The father goes out to both sons in this parable. He goes out, shamefully hitching up his skirts to run to his younger son, and before his entire party appears, he goes out to his shame to plead with the elder brother. He goes out to both brothers, but only one of them has a heart that melts at the grace. Now, some of you may be elder brothers, or you may actually be Christians, but be elder brother-ish. How can you tell if you're elder brother-ish? Well, first of all, you're going to be angry. Perhaps you really dislike parables like the 11th hour workers who get the full pay even though they only worked one hour. Uh, like the elder brother, you maybe compare yourself to other people and think you deserve better. It's not your sin that makes you miserable, it's actually your self-righteousness. If you're elder brother-ish, you're going to be angry, and you're also going to be tempted to see God as a taskmaster, that, that Greek term, doulain, to slave. You're going to think that some of his commands seem unfair, but you're still going to obey them outwardly. Because of that, you're going to think that God, therefore, owes you something. Elder brother-ish believers blame God because, because, they don't think, because they think, hey, I'm serving God, and he's not responding the way I think he should. And therefore, you're going to lack a consistent, joyful assurance of salvation. When you fail God, you're going to feel worthless. Not because you hurt God, but because, uh, you, not because you broke trust with your father, but because you don't like failure. You may secretly question whether you're really a Christian. There's never a party in an elder brother type's relationship with God. You're going to lack joy. If you're elder brother-ish, you're going to be angry. 
You're going to see God as a taskmaster at times. You're sometimes going to think God owes you something, so you're going to get mad at God as well. You're going to lack that joyful assurance of his love, and you may resent younger brother types. Notice how the elder brother assumes the worst about the younger. There had been no mention of prostitutes, only wild living, which can mean a lot of things. And when, he, and, and when the younger brother did return, he resented him. Uh, he looked down upon them. He thought he was better than him. Whenever I hear Christians going off about this group of sinners or that group of sinners or these people or those people, I know I'm dealing with somebody who is either one, an elder brother and not a Christian at all, or two, an elder brother-ish immature Christian who needs to understand the grace of God for his sin more deeply so that he can become a more faithful and loving and joyful follower of Jesus filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes when you come with the empty hands of faith to Jesus who saves. When the gospel sinks in, you're comfortable thinking that you're the biggest sinner in the room because you know you're secure in the Father's love. So you don't get defensive. You don't have motive to criticize other sinners. A true follower of Jesus is the least judgmental person in the room. And this looking down on younger brother types is not just true of self-righteous people on the social, political, or religious right. It's also true of people on the left and of people in the middle. Don't hear what I'm not saying. You can be just as self-righteous about your recycling as you can be about sexual sin. You can be just as self-righteous about being a moderate who is better than everyone else because you avoid the extremes. You can even be elder brother-ish against elder brother-ish types by thinking that you're better than the elder brother-ish people because you get the gospel. See, pride is sneaky. Sin can be so subtle. An elder brother will look down on younger brother types. A believer who is elder brother-ish will sometimes do that, but with God's grace, repents. And if you're elder brother-ish, you will also possibly find it hard to forgive when others sin against you, particularly when they do it on purpose. Again, because you lack a consistent, joyful assurance of God's delight over you, you because you can relate to God as a slave at times instead as, of, as a deeply loved child to a compassionate father, you, you find it hard to forgive others who have hurt you, and so you hold a grudge. You want that pound of flesh before you're ready to release them. And this could be a sure sign of being an elder brother who's not a Christian at all, or it could be a sign of being an elder brother-ish Christian who needs to learn more deeply of the delight that the Father has. Be more honest about the depth of your own sin and see how wide and, and, and massive and infinite is the love of your Father for you. We see younger brother, we see older brother, but we also see Jesus, the true elder brother. You see, the elder brother in a, a Jewish family in first century Palestine had certain responsibilities, family duties and obligations. And if the younger brother went away and went off and was lost, the elder brother's job was to go hunt him down. And if he was in debt, which he was, to pay off his debts because he had a family obligation to him as one in that tightly bounded family clan-based network. And everybody would have known that. And yet... The elder brother in this parable did not do his duty. He did not go after his younger brother. He did not bring his younger brother home. He did not pay off his younger brother's debts. But there is one who did. And his name is Jesus. We have another picture. This is Rembrandt van Ren painted the scene of the younger brother returning home to the father. You look at the, the tattered feet 
the filthy robes, the, 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 the scabbed over shaven head where the hair has fallen out from mange or whatever. And you see the compassion of the father. This was painted by Rembrandt toward the end of a life that had been filled with, with proud and arrogant partying and spectacular suffering by one who was wanting to go home to the father. Jesus Thank you. That Jesus is this true elder brother that brings him home and that pays our debt down, pays it off completely so that we can come home. And that makes the ultimate prodigal God the Father himself, the spendthrift who throws away his money so freely, foolishly giving the younger son property to his own shame in the community, running after his son, shameful. One New Testament scholar explains that when the, the, in a Palestinian Jewish context, running after somebody like that, hitching up your skirts, would have been viewed as the actions of an overwrought female, not a dignified man within their culture. And yet the father felt compassion. He interrupts the, the apology. I don't want it, your penance. I don't want your bargaining. I want you to be my son, not my hired hand, not my slave. That's what the older brother was doing to his own shame. This, this prodigal God, spendthrift God, gracious, overwhelming, extravagantly generous God's embrace is what opens the door for true repentance, to live life with the Father for our own sake and his sake because the Father loves you so extravagantly. New clothes, the best robe, a ring on your finger, a party and a fatted calf, a father who is willing to be humiliated in order to beg an elder brother to come into the celebration. He says, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And when God, the fo God tells the followers of Jesus what he is, when he describes himself in this parable inconsistently, God says, I am your father, Abba, your daddy. What's a father? There are all kinds of fathers. We've got one picture of a father. Um, this is a penguin father with his penguin baby who will literally use his legs to wrap around the little baby while mom goes out grocery shopping in the, uh, in the ocean. And so he'll, he'll sit there for, for, for hours, for days. He'll sit on an egg as well. They're very, very, very good fathers. Uh, we've got another father. You know, the Bible calls, says that, that God is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's terrifying because a lion can kill you. Uh, they're powerful. They're wild. They, they, can't, they can't tame a lion, not really. But remember, lions can be dads. And no matter what is on the Serengeti at that particular moment, that little lion cub is in the safest spot on the planet because he has a dad who loves him and is going to protect him. We got a video. Let's see if this video will play here. Um, this is a monkey dad. Um, and monkey dads um, are really good dads. Uh, the thing about a monkey like this is if something comes after it, it can rip a wild animal in half with its arms. Those hands are so powerfully strong, they could rip tree branches off of trees. They could crack a rock open. And yet, a father so gently taking little nips off of his baby boy. Little insects, little bits of dander, little bits of dirt. Sometimes he finds one and it's a bug and it's squishy and he goes ahead and sticks it in his mouth. Um, that's Spocky, the little baby boy. Mom is actually around the corner with the daughter who is an older generation. But this little monkey is so helpless and yet 
A father. A father. That's a father's love. That little baby boy, there's one of the good juicy ones. That little baby boy monkey, when he's going to start, you know, trying to run off where he's not safe yet doing that, yet what do you think dad's going to do when he start, starts trying to get away and go down into the dangerous forest floor down there? Look at that cute face. He's going to try to get away, but, you know, dad's going to keep him safe, and he's going to keep him clean because that's what a good dad does. Oh, hey, baby boy, nope, you're not going to do it, buddy. It's dangerous down there. Sorry, friend. You know, oh, that's a dad. That's what, when God says, think of me as your dad, as your father, Think of this powerful, powerful animal who is so fierce and so wild and not at all tamed and yet so gentle on his little baby boy. That's how God sees us. He sees us as his kids. He sees us that way. Whoops, there he goes. But dad's going to be there. Dad's going to be there because that's what God is like. He is a father, a father who loves his baby he loves his kids. He loves his children. He's strong, ferocious, fierce, and terrifying, and loving and compassionate. And you are never more safe than you are safe in the arms of a father who loves you completely and totally and fully and finally and forever. Friends, that's the good news, that you have a dad. You have a dad, and he loves you. He's strong. He's powerful. He's good, and he is your father. Let's pray.